chapter 3. Uh, verse 23, 24 is what we're looking at. So uh, once again, it reads this way. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. So verse 24 is what we were just getting ready to start uh, last week. It begins with the word knowing. In other words, we are to, uh, the command there that when we, in whatever we do, whether it's your job or something you volunteered for or whatever responsibilities you are fulfilling, we are to do that in the, in the way that we are serving the Lord. That's who it is we're trying to please. And he says we do that because there's something that we know. Uh, the word for knowing there means that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Uh, so once again, remember that as we grow in faith, faith, again, is not wishful thinking. Faith does not mean that you're hedging your bets. There's substance to our faith. We are, faith means we are trusting in God. We are trusting what he has said. We're trusting in what he's going to do. We're trusting here in what he has promised to give to us. So that trust then, as we grow in our confidence, which, uh, and our confidence in the Lord comes as we grow in, our, in the knowledge of Scripture, and as we live it out. There's, there's, both components are really important. But as we grow in that way, our faith then, and I don't know if this would be theologically correct to say it this way, uh, but for me, this is what carries uh, more meaning is my faith, which is what a lot of people, a lot of people have a, a weak definition of faith. So I would say that my faith becomes knowledge. So I don't just have faith that I'm going to in, receive an inheritance from God. I would say I know it. I know it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Now that is faith, by the way. So I'm not discounting the word faith. But we live in a culture where the word faith is A, overused, and B, is not necessarily a term of strength. It, it, most people, or when I say most people, most people who are non-believers will use that in the sense of they're just hoping. Well, I'm, I'm hoping something happens. So, you know, I have, you know, what you know they say, gotta have faith. And so normally what I do is I go, no, I have no idea that they say that. What does that mean? Uh, and, you know, they don't want to take the time to explain it. It really gets them upset. Uh, they want to make their little cliche and move on. But it starts some great conversations. Um, another one, I haven't really heard this used in a while, um, but it, uh, uh, people used to say it a lot. Maybe they still do. But people will sometimes say, well, you know what they say. You've got to have faith in faith. I just say, you know, that's really that's stupid. If you think about it. Remember, the word, the word faith is trust, right? So let's just change it out. You know what they say. You've got to have trust in trust. That sounds really bizarre. So when someone says you've got to have faith in faith, go ahead and say, ask them, what, did they, what do you think that means? You do want to get to where you tell them that faith really is trust. And you do want to say, that's like saying you've got to have trust in trust. You want, you want to get there carefully because you don't want them to think that you're saying they're stupid because they've not really thought about it. And they're not stupid. But the idea is you want to make them think. Remember that sometimes what we do as Christians, maybe it's often, but sometimes what we do as Christians at least maybe to begin to open the door to be able to share Christ with people, is you want to undermine their confidence in whatever it is they, they think they believe. You want to erase their confidence. So when they use these cliches that we know really are empty, 
Remember that for some people, and maybe it's for many uh, non-believers, that these cliches that we know that are empty are what's kind of holding them together. They've never thought about it. They don't know what it means. They, they don't really want to know what it means. It just sounds good in a sense. It sounds, maybe it sounds spiritual or it sounds philosophical. Um, it, it may make them feel better spiritually in some general way. And so they're, you know, they make those statements and the people around them go, yeah, man, I know what you mean. You know, you just, I've had that experience too, man. You just gotta, you just gotta have faith. You know, and so people, then people, they kind of encourage each other with all this emptiness. And so we want to undermine, we want to blow all that up. We want to do it nicely, um, you know, without, again, without making them feel like you are arrogant and you're making them feel dumb or you don't want to make it sound like you, you just know better because what we want to reveal to them is what we've learned ourselves. But we want to blow that up to where they realize they really have nothing to stand on, that that statement is empty and meaningless and, uh, of course, what we're praying for is that we will have an opportunity, whether it's then or maybe later, to share with them really the solid foundation of, of who Christ is and, and what faith in Christ really is and what that means. Um, so this word knowing here, then, for us as believers is really very important. Um, sometimes as believers, we can go through some, uh, different kinds of doubts. Doubts about God, doubts about what he's promised, doubts about our salvation, that type of thing. It's not sinful to have doubts. It can be harmful to do nothing with those doubts. And that's sometimes, and maybe a lot of times, that's what people do. They just then begin to worry. They just start worrying about it. They don't, they're not really thinking it through. Uh, so it's important to think, when you, if, you, if you do have doubts, to think it through. You might be able to figure out where it comes from. Doesn't really matter um, where it comes from. We, we just want to make sure that we remind ourselves that we can have absolute confidence in God, and that there's no weakness in God. Um, that our <clears throat> anything God coming through on His promises is not based on the strength of our faith. Because right? sometimes we think that, you know, that if I just believe better, if I just trust better, then somehow that means God will come through. Doesn't mean that. God's not in heaven saying, you're almost there. I mean, your, your, your trust level is at 78%. You've got to get to 79%. he's not doing that, right? It's, it's based, he's faithful. And there are examples in the Bible of individuals who they, might have, they may have even been in a crisis. They just weren't doing good. God came through because that, that, that's who God is. And uh, um, so, so we want to remind ourselves of that. That never, that, again, it's not an excuse for us not to grow in our faith, but we just want to make sure we don't begin to beat ourselves up because we begin to have doubts. I do think because of the kind of culture we live in, doubts can be a little more, there's a higher number of doubts for a while. And the, and the reason why I think that takes place, or at least one reason why, is we, we still live, there's a lot of ways to describe the time we live in. I don't know if there's any one way to describe the way we live on it that would be entirely accurate and exhaustive, but one of the terms we could use is we still live in a very psychological age. And what I mean by that is we still spend a lot of time, or we are encouraged to spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves and the way we feel. And that's not really all that healthy. You know, we spend a lot of time thinking about our happiness 
and pursuing our happiness and or am I happy right that's asking yourself if you're happy can be actually a very dangerous thing because you, then you, you can be you can really get into some morbid introspection well I mean I I mean I guess I'm happy and then you keep thinking about it well I mean I'm 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 mostly happy well I am unhappy about some things well I mean actually I'm unhappy about a lot of things I'm not really very happy at all you know you just it can easily go that direction it really can it can go that direction because the way we feel can change a lot all right and so sometimes we uh, you know I'm not I'm not against all psychology I'm against most of it but um, it can it, it can just lead us down the wrong road because there's nothing to, there's, there's no foundation, there's no anchor. But for the Christian, the anchor is what we have in the scripture. And, and God tells us that we have our confidence in him, and he tells us what's going to bring us joy, and that sometimes does include a lot of happiness. And it's primarily in doing what God says, serving God, serving others. It's amazing what that does. You're, not, you're no longer thinking about yourself. In other words, because you don't want to get to the point to where, you know, I don't want to, because I've actually heard people say this before, and, and I feel bad for them uh, because they, I don't think they realize what they're really saying. So the example would be like this. I, if I'm that person that I've heard before, I'd say, well, you know, you know I found that uh, I really do find more happiness when I serve others. And so I was serving John the other day, and I was asking myself, or telling myself, man, I'm really happy serving John. <laughs> and the person was, I go, really? That's what you were thinking about? You were thinking about how happy you, I said, maybe you should have been more focused on serving John. <laughs> Just, I think there may be more happiness there. You know, it, uh, in the same way that, he, the easiest illustration of that, of course for me, I'm a dad and I'm a granddad. And so when I, when I do things for my grandkids, because you know, my kids are grown now, so. You know, I do more things for my grandkids. When I do things for them or give them things and it makes them happy, man, it makes me, I mean, I'm happy inside. Now, I, what, I, what I guarantee you what I don't do is if I'm taking, let's say I'm taking my grandkids to the candy store, I don't think, hmm, if I take my kids to the candy store today, that's going to make me so happy. And I really want to be happy today. I, I could use some happiness. So I'm going to take them there. That just sounds really selfish. You know, the thought process, which is normal for most people, is I want them to be happy. Me, taking them there, makes them happy. When we go there and they get some candy, they're going to experience happiness. A great byproduct of that, which I won't even think about until I'm experiencing it, is, man, I'm really happy. But I'm just, but I'm not thinking about being happy. I am happy. I'm just happy. All right? So, you know, that, that's, so, so that's a real detriment in our, in our culture is this constant thinking about ourselves and evaluating ourselves to death. And it's, it's, not, it's not a healthy thing. Uh, so we get back then to what the scripture is telling us here and what, he, and what he wants us to do, which is to live for God and to fulfill his will in our lives, which is what he's been talking about. And he says, when we do these things for him, I'm serving, I'm, as I serve, I do all this for him. I know, I know, there, and it's, it, the, in the Bible, the Greek uh, verb there is the perfect tense, 
which emphasizes the lasting nature or the permanence of this knowledge. So what he's really stressing is this is something that you know and you carry it with you your whole life. You, this is, this is the, we're looking forward to the future. I'm looking forward to the future. The future is not just you know, a, a dream that may or may not come true. It's coming true. It's, it's going to happen. It's not a dream. It's reality. And, and, and so there's, a, there's this permanence of this knowledge that we have, uh, which, again, is rooted in our growth in Christ. So remember, we don't think that somehow we can, we can learn these facts, and if we just keep thinking about these facts, it's going gonna, it's gonna to move us along. It doesn't work that way. All right? This isn't like a good luck charm. All right? The idea is that I'm at, I need to be growing as a Christian. And so the, the, this, this is what kind of grows within me naturally. Uh, as an individual. So I know that from the Lord I'm going to receive inheritance. Receive really means what, what it sounds like. I'm going to receive fully what I am due. So the idea is I am owed this inheritance, but I'm not owed this inheritance because of anything I've done. I'm owed this inheritance because God's promised it. That's the idea. And so I'm going to receive that. I, what, what Christ gets, I get. Remember the, the Bible uses this term oftentimes. It says that we are co-heirs with Christ. So again, just, just to kind of keep in mind what that means, a co-heir with Christ would be like this. So I, ha I have four children. Um, I don't have any money, but let's say I did. Let's say I had $100 million. So if I had $100 million and, my, if I ha and I had a will, then the will would stipulate what each of my kids get. So if, it was, if I had 100 million, I could give each one 25 million and go on our merry way. But if they are co-heirs, that's a whole different dynamic. Co-heirs means each one gets the whole thing, right? So they, they all four have complete access to the entire 100 million. Now obviously that could cause problems if they don't like each other very much and human greed can get in there. But the idea is, is they have access. So now when it comes to Christ, remember that the inheritance he's talking about that he's receiving from the Father is this eternal or infinite inheritance. There's, there's, no, like, there's no limit to this. What Christ receives, we receive. Right? So Christ receives the kingdom. We receive the kingdom. We, we, we live in it. We take part in it. You know, it, it belongs in one sense to all of us. There's no doubt as to who the king is. That's Jesus. All right? But what he receives, we receive. And so in the same way that I know he's going to get it, I'm going to receive it as well because that's what he's promised. And so it's really pretty fabulous uh, when we think about that. So, again, as we were looking at the way these verses were written the last two weeks, some of the individuals who are receiving this letter, are, remember, they're slaves. So you have a slave who's owned and owns nothing is pictured here as receiving the award, the reward of an inheritance because the slave is the freeman of the Lord and he's an heir of God. So remember that for the poor, um, this is really an, this is an amazing passage. Now, some would say, and I've read where secular individuals, and Paul was even accused of this. Paul was accused of starting a religion that was only uh, meaningful 
to barbarians and to the poor because he's making all these promises. And there, I guess you could say there's truth that the poor would be kind of attentive to that. But remember, just because someone's poor doesn't mean they're dumb. Right? A poor person can figure out if someone's trying to rip them off. You do know that m- most cons that take place take place with those who are poor. You know that, right? I mean, you know where the, high, the highest, the neighborhoods with the highest crime rate are where? Poor neighborhoods. I mean, it's, it's not, you know, thing is this, the, it, we're stealing from the rich. They're not. It, it, people steal from each other. It, it's, it's, it's not, you know, we keep thinking there's this huge division in the way, that we, the way that we exist, and there's not. And so when it comes to this, then, the idea is, is that this is God's promise to you. You are, re, what you are getting now is wrong. It's, it may be immoral. You may be suffering. You are still a sinner. You rebelled against God. The truth is, is that God is going to save you from your sin. This is not something that's only for the rich or for the wealthy or for the better educated. It's, not for, it's for everyone. That includes you. And along with that, there is, with that uh, forgiveness, there is, there is an inheritance that belongs to you when the Lord returns or when you die. And it's something that we all get, all of us. The, the rich don't get more than you. You don't get more than them. You both get all of it. And that's pretty good news to individuals. And of course, remember that for the believer, what we understand is this is not just about some kind of reward from God. We're talking about this, you know, Christianity is dealing with the entire relationship that we have with Christ and everything that's connected to that and everything that comes from God. So it's not just an emphasis only on supposedly money or gold. And we're trying to entice an individual to follow um, what it is we want them to do. Because, because again, what's, what slave in his, in his right mind would want to do that if you're not seeing the reward right now? Because most of it's about the future. Why would I follow Christ now? In fact, some people today in our country do the same thing. You know, we've gone through this before. I've told you that some individuals for various reasons, may hear the gospel and they kind of get different ideas in their minds. And so they say they want to follow Christ and they, they say they want to believe in Christ and they may go through all the motions and say all the prayers and all the different things uh, that they're asked to do. And then a few months later, because I've talked to you like this, and they say, well, you know, this whole Christianity thing's not working out. Well, why is it? Well, I mean, I thought when I became a Christian, my wife would change. She's no different. She's still a nag. You know, and I, I mean, I've been a good Christian now for four months. And when, when, when are things going to change? Whoa, time out. Whoa, is that in the promise of God? You become a believer, your wife will no longer be a nag. It's not in there. All right, but people have this idea. And there's a, there's a lot of different other kinds of ideas people can have. But the idea, you know, you may not really sense, have a sense of inner fulfillment. And you say, I don't know. I just, there's something I'm looking for. And I became a Christian. And I mean, I just, I'm not feeling it. You know, I yeah, all this about serving others. Well, when's someone going to serve me? <laughs> I have heard that before. <laughs> when is someone going to serve me? <laughs> and I said, well, I told one guy, I said, well, I'm serving you now by giving you the proper understanding of Scripture. <laughs> yes. Well, some some can, some do, absolutely. Um, that is. That does happen, I think, at least in some cases. 
Christians have misrepresented the gospel. You know, I, I saw that a lot in, in, in the uh, jail. Some believers don't mean to do that, but, but they still do. The idea is this. So, I'm talking, so let's say that this side of it was all inmates. They, they don't know what they're facing. They're, a lot of them are facing a lot of time. And I'm, so I'm, talk, I'm talking about the gospel. And then I say something like, you come to Christ, he will solve all of your problems. What is the number one problem on their mind? My court case, my sentence, my lawyer, whatever. So when I say, you come to Christ, he will solve all your problems, what do they think that means? Now, they all may not think that, but a lot of them are thinking that, and they do. So I may not have meant that, but that's what they heard. So that's why we do, sometimes we need to pay attention to how we present the gospel to make sure none of us are going to give a perfect presentation of scripture. And you don't have to worry about that. Right? There's, there's not like a test. At the same time, as we grow as Christians and mature, we grow in our understanding of how we speak about the gospel. And so, now I was a jail chaplain, so I was forced into that to a degree. But the idea was, is I would then, when I would present the gospel, I would tell the inmates, I would say, now, if you think that coming to Christ means you're going to beat your case, it doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean that. If you think that coming to Christ means you get a shorter sentence, you're taking God for a fool. Like you think God's in heaven going, oh, look at him. He now believes in me. I'm going to cut his sentence in half. So I, I don't know. Now, God can do that. God has done that. He doesn't always do that. All right? Um, so, we, so, we, so that's why if you're talking to a friend, you may have a friend who's going through a very difficult time, let's say, at home. And their, their marriage is rough, the family's rough, it's really hard, and they're going, and so now they're, they're thinking about things, and you have an opportunity talking about the Lord and pray with them, and let's say after several different times, you're talking about the gospel. So you need to be aware that when you talk about the fact that we take our problems to Christ, which we do, that is true, right? And that uh, Christ understands our problems, that's true, he does. And that Christ can help resolve our problems, which is true, you also want to make sure that the individual knows that I'm not saying that if you believe in Christ, your marriage is going to be healed in three weeks. You can't make that promise. You don't know. We don't know what's, we don't know all the details of what's going on. We don't know where this individual and their spouse is in, in, in the process of things. We don't know the spiritual status to a degree of the other one. They may be an unbeliever, but that doesn't mean that they're thinking about divorce, but they might be. There's all these unknowns. We know that God does have the ability and the power to do that, absolutely. So we're not denying that, and so we don't want to get to, to where we sound like we're just a party pooper, and that's the only thing that we're saying. We're not trying to diminish trusting in God to save a marriage, but we want to make sure that they're not, be, they're not becoming a believer in Christ to save their marriage. They're coming to Christ because they recognize that they have sinned, period and that they are separated from God, and they need God, whether God saves their marriage or not. And so if, so if you are talking with a friend who's going through that, you would need to be aware of that to make sure they're not misunderstanding um, what we mean when we talk about Christ solving our problems. That doesn't mean you have to dwell on it the whole time. You just want to make sure, because 
And I don't, there's no way to know what the percentage is of how many people who are going through troubled marriages, how many of those individuals are believing that God's going to save their marriage and it's going to be hunky-dory, and how many of those individuals are coming to Christ because they're convicted of their sin, because they all may look the same to us. We just want to make sure that we're there for them, make sure we've explained it, and, and, and it is still possible that an individual can become a true believer. They're still expecting God to save their marriage. That's not bad. And if God doesn't, they're disappointed. That's normal. And then we continue talking about what? That we can trust God, that God really doesn't know what he's doing, that God can comfort um, the whole deal. You don't have to feel guilty. I used to feel guilty about that. Like somehow, somehow, it's, I know that it's like this. You know that God never lets anyone down. So somehow I've let him, I've let him down. And I would feel like I had to make up for this. You know, there's this marriage falling apart. I don't know what, and I didn't know what to tell him. Right? And then I realized that's ridiculous, Bob. What would you do if your life was just simply just falling apart? Well, I, I mean, I trust God. I, and then that's what you share with him. And so that's what we do. So, again, this knowledge he's talking about here is not just something for the poor. It's not a manipulative thing. It is a, 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 uh, an idea, is this foundation of how we are to be motivated to, 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 uh, to serve the Lord. That means the Lord's paying attention. He knows what we're doing, and God rewards those who serve him. He doesn't have to, but he does. He's promised to. And so we do this with great joy. Because there's a, there's a day coming, and it does. It helps us to, to get through even, you know, there's, you know, life can be mundane sometimes. You know, you got to go out in the yard and pick the weeds, trim the yard, and you can do a fabulous job, and your yard could look fantastic. But it's August in Georgia. <laughs> Five days later, someone says, are you ever going to mow your yard? <laughs> right? So you just got to do it again. But the idea is, is that we, whatever it is that we're doing, we, there's, there's a difference inside of us because of the truth of what we understand. At the same time, knowing that what we do here and now is important. And that's, and that's one of the things that, that he's assuming here, is it matters what we do. It makes a difference uh, because it makes a difference to God. So again, uh, verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord. So the word serve there, again, is the same uh, uh, verb family where the word doulos comes from, which is the word slay, which is used a couple of verses earlier. It depicts uh, the believer as being uh, the love slave of Christ. That doesn't really sound too good anymore because everything is overly sexualized. Um, so, but the idea of a, of a love slave in, in the Old Testament days was, had, was nothing sexual. The idea was this. So let's say that, that John is my slave, and he's my slave because he borrowed some money for a business venture. It didn't go well. He can't pay me back. And so he and his family now, they're enslaved to me. And we've worked it out, and he's got to work for me for 10 years to pay off his debt. So he works with me for 10 years, his debt's paid off, and so I say, John, I said, I said, you've been faithful, man, you've been great having around, you know, the whole idea of slaves, there's different kinds of slaves, and they've existed for all of eternity and on the earth, as long as there's been sin, there's been slaves, so there are those who have great relationships with the slave, it's just, that's how it was, so I would say, you know, in a sense, you've earned your papers, 
And so then he says to me, you know, Bob, I've been doing some thinking. And since I started, and he would say it this way, since I've been working for you, because even though he's my slave, he has no rights. I mean, I own everything, right? But now he's earned his freedom. He says, since I've been working for you, I mean, I, my wife and I, we got our own home. Our kids have their own bedroom. And I've never missed a meal. And there is no stress in my life. I just do what you say. I am as happy as I can be. I don't think I want to go. If it's okay with you, I think I want to stay here. So we would have a little ceremony. And I would take a gold ring and basically take a hammer and a spike in his ear and put that clamp uh, on there. And that would then be a, uh, a symbol that everybody could see that would speak well of me as well as him. They would see that and recognize that he now has chosen to remain a slave. That they don't know the reasons, but he's chosen to do that. But that speaks well of me because you're like, wow, that guy wants to be enslaved to that man. And he would then basically work for me, be my slave, for the rest of his life. And I would care for him for the rest of his life. And that's, that's kind of the idea. So when it comes to the relationship we have with Christ, because yes, Christ is our friend and Christ is God, but Christ, the Bible also uses the word master. Remember that because he's God, everything we have is from him. Every breath we take is because it's his will that we breathe. We are truly dependent upon him in, for everything. We then live to do his will. We're not seeking to do our will, it's his will. But you know that whole thing kind of combines to where we have a pretty good life as a result of all of that. And so the idea is, is that I am his, I am his slave. I'm, I am willingly his slave. It's not, it's not heavy chains around my neck, yes. Yes, that's what a bond servant is. Bond servant, love slave. Bond servant is probably a better way to say it today uh, than to say love slave. But that, that, was a, that would have been a common term back then. But yeah, that's exactly what that is. Uh, so we then, we have, you know, when, it serve, when we serve Christ, if you think about it, we've got nothing to worry about. God's going to answer our prayers. He'll always be with us. Our inheritance is guaranteed. We know that we will, in one sense, never really die. Our bodies may die, but we won't die. We, we, will, we will enter into a better state when, whenever that happens or when the Lord returns. I mean, it's, 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 a it, it's a win, yeah, it's a win-win all the way around. All right, so that's the idea. So the Bible doesn't shy away from using that term. I know we live in a culture where people get all freaked out about with the word slave, uh, but we really don't need to, all right? Um, yes, there's a lot of great negative things associated with slavery, but not here. This is a, there's a different dynamic when it comes to, uh, to us and the relationship that we have with Christ. And, and, it really, and, and so Paul doesn't shy away from that. And I think what I think is important is remember that when, when the word of God was written and God preserved the word, God knows all things. So that meant that God knew in <coughs> 60 AD, what our culture would be like in the year 2023. He didn't have Paul use a different word. Kept the word. 
So it doesn't matter what the dynamic is here. We understand what the scripture says, and we can embrace what the scripture says uh, when it comes to that. And if someone wants to twist that to somehow make it look like the Bible is embracing slavery, they're just wrong, because it's not what it's doing. Um, and we're always going to have individuals who will misrepresent scripture, misunderstand scripture, whether some people will misunderstand it out of ignorance, some will purposely do that to lead others astray. So the idea is that we willingly serve Christ for his glory and for his honor. This verb, dulo or duleo, uh, is what's called the present tense, which means that this is the habitual practice uh, of our life. That this is the way that we live our life day in and day out, is we, 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 we do the commands of God. So think about it in this way. So when two people get married, and, the, and there's this, if we just kind of generalize it, the promise is to love each other for the rest of your life. So as long as you're breathing, that's what you do. That, that's how you live. That's how you think. Right? In other words, you're not necessarily thinking. It's like, so when I got up this morning, I didn't think, oh, I'm still married, so I've got to serve my wife. I, I wasn't thinking that. I don't, you don't think that way. It's automatic. When I get up and I start speaking to her, if I'm going to go do something and I ask if she wants that, that's just a normal part of, of our relationship. Uh, that's, that's how it is with, I think, everyone who's married. You just, when, you, when, when someone calls me up, so, uh, and let's say that, uh, say Nick calls me up and says, hey, Rachel and I want to, want to know if you can have dinner with us Friday. I don't think, yeah, I can come, and don't even think about my wife. It's, it's automatic, right? It's automatic. I'm going to check with her, not to see if I can go, to see if we can go, right? It's just auto, that's how that is. It's just automatic. It just becomes a part of your life. And at, during this entire marriage we have, which will be the rest of our life, it, there's, not, there's not this idea that, this is, just a heavy, this is just a heavy responsibility. That, that doesn't happen, right? You're, you're living this, this new life together. So when it comes to this relationship we have with Christ, you know, it's not this bondage and it's got all these commands. There's a lot of commands in marriage that aren't written, right? You've got to be kind to each other. You've got to ask each other for forgiveness when you mess up. I mean, it just goes on and on. You know, you've got to share. I mean, it just doesn't end, you know, with all the stuff that you have to do. You know, for each other. And then if one of them gets sick, you know, mercy sakes. I mean, so if my wife gets sick and throws up, well, who is, who's going to clean that up? <laughs> it's, it's pretty much me, you know, because I'm the one who's not sick and I'm there. All right? But so the idea is that just becomes a part of your existence. And so when it comes to this relationship we have with Christ, that's what it is. So... That's why the Christian really, sh as we grow as Christians, there are certain things we should not experience. If you experience these things, it just means you're a human being and you're still growing. So I'm not saying if you think this way or you've had this thought, you're now evil and you're not even saved. I'm not saying that. All right? But what really should never happen for the Christian is, is we should never, ever think, oh, it's Sunday. I've got to go to church. Now, you may be tired. Now, I just want you to know, I don't, and it's not just because I'm a pastor. When I wasn't a pastor, I, I just never thought about it. When I woke up on Sunday, I never thought about it. That's just, I'm going to church. What is I going to do? I don't, I don't make other plans for Sunday. That's what I'm doing. I'm going to go meet with my brothers and sisters. That's, that's just that's part of my life. All right? So I don't wake up like, oh, man. You know, or like, oh, 
And this is the Sunday where there's a Sunday night service. Oh, <laughs> all day. You know, it's just, you know, it just, that doesn't happen. Now we're human beings, I know things happen. Uh, and we have, you know, we have whatever. But as we grow as Christians, it just becomes a part of who we are. Being with each other, sharing life together like we do with our spouse. And, and we forge this new life with, with God because I have this relationship with him. So moving on, looking at verse 25 and following, he says this. He says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So when he finishes this section here, he just throws this in here, all right? And he wants them to understand, again, that God is watching over everything, and the one who does wrong does not get away with it. The bottom line is, is that there is no partiality with God. It doesn't matter if you're poor or rich, there's judgment. And judgment comes on all, and the wrongdoer will have to pay for what he's done. So, I am a wrongdoer, and I have to pay for what I've done. However, remember, Christ was my substitute. So I was still punished for my wrongdoing. But my punishment was taken by Christ. That aspect, or that dynamic of, of forgiveness is very important. Because outside of the church, some people think, maybe it's many, think that when we speak of being forgiven, that we're getting away with something. That my, that my wrongdoing is not, that I'm not being held accountable, and that my wrongdoing is not being punished. Wrong. I am held accountable. But, but it, my sin was placed on Christ. He was held accountable in my place. My sin was punished in him. It was truly punished. Right? There, the guy, guy wasn't playing, a, he's not playing a word game. Like, well, this sounds cute. Let's just say this. It covers everything. No, he literally was punished for the wrong that I have done and the wrong that I will do. So none of us have gotten away with anything. None of, none of us has a sin that will go unpunished. All of our sins. So if every single one of us here is a believer, then all of our sins have been punished. All, the, all of our sin has been um, accounted for by Christ himself. So there's no unpunished So that way God is what? Never unjust. He's never unjust. He never just overlooks a sin and pretends it's not there. Every, every sin has been called into an account. Yes, Mike? This may be a sound like a, like a kid's question, but, you know, um, you know how they always hear, well, you don't want to be standing before the Lord and you have to explain this, that, or other, but if it's forgiven in Christ, we bring that up. I mean, okay, say that again now. That we would have to explain that we didn't take our kids to church? No, well, not that specific example. I just oh, no, no, I know, but I mean, if yeah, that's the example. Case, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so here's the thing for the, for the Christian. We never have to give an account for our sins. Yeah, that's that, and that's, now, and that has made some Christians nervous. Because they think, well, wait a minute. Then you're, you're saying we can do whatever we want. Well, I am saying you can do whatever you want. But if you're a true believer, you don't go that way, right? My wife has absolute trust in me. So I can go out and do whatever I want. I can. There's a bunch of things I ain't going to do. I don't want to do them. Right? So, but there's that, there's that thing. So when it comes to, so we will never be held 
and brought into account for our sin. Our sin's been judged. When we face judgment, it's basically a, an evaluation of the quality of our works, the things that we did. The things that we did for the Lord, he will reward us for those things. Those things that we did for self-glory or whatever it happened to be, those things will be burned up and there's, there's nothing to reward because it's been consumed. It is possible to lose rewards. You can't lose salvation, but you can lose rewards. You know, the individual can be living a good, solid Christian life and they can be kind of going along, everything is going really well. Whatever happens, happens. They begin to drift from the Lord. Different bad things begin to happen. And they can lose rewards. That, that, that seems to be a possibility when you read about rewards throughout the scripture. All right, but you don't, you don't lose your salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about the individual who is judged. That's the judgment seat of Christ, which is being talked about in, in 1 Corinthians 3, where all of their works are burned up. It says that, all of them, but they themselves are saved. All right, so in fact, uh, it's almost like you kind of get into heaven on the skin of your teeth. You, you didn't really, because none of those things are determining if you get to heaven. We get to heaven because of Christ, but I have no rewards. Um, I do think, this is my opinion, you'd really pick it up. The Bible does say that in heaven uh, there's no sadness and no sorrows and every tear will be wiped away. Well, that's something that's going to happen. He, he will do that. I don't know if I can say that it's that way right now. I, I do think, it's possible, because I don't know when all that takes place, that I can feel a moment of shame if everything is, if everything is I have nothing to show up in my life with the Lord. What, how shameful would it be? He's done like everything for me, and I've got nothing. Right? I do believe I can experience shame. But when it comes at least to the eternal order, every tear is wiped away. And, and when that begins, the slate is truly wiped clean. I mean, it's, it's really an amazing thing to think about. And sometimes, you know, people get, the, they get e, the little eejibijis, e, 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 you know, like, well, you know, but now you're saying that some individuals can... Yes, we are saying that. I, I, I can't, there's going to be Christians, do you, think be, do you think that there'll be anyone in heaven who doesn't deserve to be there? Well, you have to, because we don't deserve to be there. So the bottom line is, yes, there's going to be lots of people who don't deserve to be there, and we might even say there are some who deserve, who, who are less deserving than others of being there. But God is merciful and gracious. He is, Absolutely. And we, and we can't, we shouldn't be jealous about that. Now, so I, I guess what some people are worried about is the individual who is purposely seeking to take advantage of God. God is not a buffoon. God cannot be fooled. If an individual is playing a game and they're using religion to try to do, I am sure God can take care of that. God can see their heart, he knows their heart, I'm not, it's not my job to try to enforce that or bring that about. It's not. That's his. It's clearly his. Remember, um, Jesus tells the story of the wheat and the tares. And the enemies come, the enemy comes and plants tares, weeds, in the wheat field. So the workers say, do you want us to go and just pluck them all out now? And he goes, no. Don't do it now because you might pull up some of the what? The wheat. Sway to the harvest. And then there's a phrase Jesus called the Lord of the harvest. That would be God. He'll take care of it at that point in time. 
And so, you know, it's, it's, uh, that's, that's going to happen. We need to make sure we're, we're doing what we need to do and, and do that right. So there's judgment that comes from God. There's no partiality. Yes, we have escaped uh, because of Christ and what he's done. Remember that Jesus suffered and died for each one of us. He didn't just bleed. He didn't just hurt a little. He had to be tortured and killed because that's what our sin deserved. And he experienced every bit of that for us. And I'm saved by God's grace. And then along with that, God then infuses me. He indwells me with his spirit to empower me now to live for him in gratitude, which I should want to anyway, but I'm in the flesh. The flesh is weak. I'm going to do it perfectly. So he gives me the spirit, which will give me strength, desire, motivation to help me to do these things that I should do. And along the way, I still have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ. So when I blow it along the way, which I'm going to do, sometimes more than others, he is, in, in essence, pleading my case because Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And if Satan's up there telling God, God, do you see that? That, that guy you have as your preacher, Bob, look what he just did. And Jesus said, uh, by the way, Yes, he is guilty of that, and I died for that when I, was, when I was crucified on the cross. And when God views me, he sees me uh, dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ when he sees me. So he doesn't see my sin. He's not pretending that I haven't sinned. He knows I did because his son still has the scars from the death he had to suffer because of my sin. But he sees the righteousness of Christ. It is an amazing picture. Uh, of what God has done for us and the life that he's called us to live. And so that should give to us great joy and great freedom uh, to enjoy the, the life that God has given us as well as a, as a seriousness to live for him because, as we know, just like we were on our way to hell, many are on their way to hell, and it pleases God to use us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others to bring them into the kingdom. And the way, one of the ways we do that is to ensure that our life lends a sense of credibility to the gospel and we live this way so I don't undermine the message. Uh, and even with that, I know I've shared this before, but this is really very important. Even with that, at your job, I guess in particular, but not necessarily limited to that, when we blow it, so you're at work and, you, and, you, and you, let's say you get caught up. Uh, you know, they, there's, I've read several books. I don't know if this happens anymore, but it's called the, the water fountain gang. You know, everyone's getting the water and they're talking about the boss. And, you know, you're, you know, I can't stand this, I can't stand that, whatever it is. So let's say you get caught up in doing that. And then you feel convicted later that, man, man you just did it so easy. I just so easily joined in, you know. And maybe everything they're saying was true. So at the moment, we kind of felt justified, but we really weren't. At that moment, when you confess your sin to God, you know what you need to do. You, you need to go to the others. And I think what that does is gives us an incredible opportunity to witness for Christ, even if you don't share the gospel. Because if the next day I go to work and I see John, and I say, John, hey, I need to talk to you for a minute. Now, this is going to make John, if John's not a believer, it's going to make him really uncomfortable. I said, John, you know yesterday we were talking to the water fountain, we were talking about whoever. He goes, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He thinks I want to get into it again. I go, man, I, you know what? I mean, I shouldn't have done that. I'm a Christian, and I shouldn't talk bad about people, and I, just, I don't want to misrepresent Christ, and so I, I need you to forgive me. He's not expecting that to come from me. 
And so there's all kinds of responses he can have. He can say, oh, oh yeah, oh, yeah, 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 no, no, no worries. Don't, I, then I, what I, sh I think the best thing to do is say, no, John, now don't, blow, I'm actually very serious. You know, so don't just blow me off. And then he may, well, I'm, I'm not blowing you off. I said, okay, so you do forgive me. I, I'm trying to get him to say the words. It's important, because right, the Lord may use it in his life later. Or he may say, oh, man, we all make mistakes. It's no big deal. I go, well, actually, it's, it's a big deal. Because I, I, I don't just feel this way. I, I know that I actually failed God. God has a standard I need to live up to. And man, I just messed that up. And I can even tell him, it depends on how comfortable you are with the individual, I can even tell him, say, you know, John, I said, I just, I just don't ever want my life or the things I do to interfere with someone seriously considering the gospel. He may get a big lump in his throat because he does not want to hear that. Maybe he does. Who knows what's going to happen with that? But when you, you, when you start using that kind of phrasing, when we pray and ask God to use that in their lives, it is possible, and I know it is because I've heard people share stories with me, that if I ask him to forgive me in that way, and I'll say, John, it's, it, it is a big deal, and I don't want anything that I would ever do would interfere with you taking the gospel seriously. Man, he, who know, he, he takes that home with him. Just kind of, remember, even if he's not constantly to think about it, stuff goes on in your brain all the time. You know, remember there's a story, it's a true story. Um, I can't remember what year it was. I know it was in the, I think it was the 1800s. But there was a man who was raised uh, in a Christian home and his parents took him to church every single Sunday. Uh, and he went with his family every Sunday until he was in his early 20s uh, when he bought his own farm. And then he stopped, never went to church, didn't go to church again. And he was in his field, he was somewhere between 60, age 60 and 70, and he was plowing his field. He had been in church, for, I guess, about 40 years, and all of a sudden remembered, word for word, a sermon he heard when he was 20. And he dropped to his knees and gave his life to Christ. Now that's very dramatic and, and a very unique kind of a situation. But I have spoken to individuals who've said, They'll say things like, well, several years ago, I met this guy, he's a Christian, and he said, da, 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 and I've just never been able to get it out of my mind. They, they, they may think about it all the time, but every now and then, it's just like it would come back, and they'd kind of mull it over, and it would bother them, it would, it would disturb them, or what have you, or cause them to be curious about certain things. That's great. So you see, even in our failings, because some of you have this idea that, well, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be perfect at work. If you're not perfect at work, you've blown it. No, you haven't blown it, all right? Because what happens is, is what, at least, if nothing else, what John knows is this. John's going to know that I take my relationship with Christ really serious. And, there's, and I read a book a long, long time ago, back, I guess, I think it was in the 80s, written by a guy who was, uh, he was a philosopher. He was a Christian. And uh, he said that... Um, in most cases, maybe in many, when it comes to non-believers and their interactions with believers, they have an internal conflict that, that's going on all the time. And he says the way that it works itself out is, on the one side, they desperately want you to be a phony. Because if you're a phony, they don't have to pay attention to the message. They can just disregard it. But at the exact same time, and maybe with the same intensity, they desperately don't want you to fail. They might even get angry if you do. 
because they're looking for something that's real. They want, they, they want something meaningful. And if you fail and don't deal with it, it's like you take away their hope. Now, it doesn't mean they're going to they're gonna come to Christ because, you know, they see that you take it seriously. All right? Remember, the Bible still says there are times that our life is, is the uh, uh, stench of death to those who are damned. But the bottom line is, is, is there, this is going, this is acting. And your life and the way you live your life, the way you handle your life is of great importance to individuals. And so they have that conflict going on. They want you to fail. They don't want you to fail. They, they want to, at least to know there really is hope out there, even if they don't take advantage of it. If the human beings are weird, and that's what sin does to us. We become really weird beings. You know, we, we want there to be hope, but we're not going to touch it. You know, that kind of thing. We want to know it's there. But God may move that individual to that point. Uh, so that's why all these things really do matter. As I mentioned last week, the people that you meet, uh, you meet no one by accident. It doesn't mean every relationship or every person you meet, it's going to be a profound encounter. It may be just a casual one, maybe momentary. But you don't know that. Just, just take each one seriously. And take each one, I guess I would say, just genuinely. Just you know, if something comes up, great. If nothing, I'm not going to worry about it. All right? and, and the Lord may, may use that in, in different ways. And, it, and he does. It's, it's amazing as to uh, how, that, how that happens. So moving on then, back down to uh, uh, Colossians, starting in chapter... Well, I was going to start in chapter 4. Um, but that would be really hard to do. Um, so, chapter 4 will be next week. Um, and uh, we'll, when I say we'll finish out the book, we won't finish it next week, but we'll start <laughs> chapter four, and uh, it may take two or three weeks, but uh, we'll work our way through um, to the end. But let's pray. Father, as always, we are grateful. Lord, we want your word uh, to have an impact on our life, and we want our life to have an impact on others. We ask, Lord, you help us to think about the scripture, about what it means, about what it's saying, and how it applies to the way we live thoughts we should have, how we should respond to different situations, how we should treat people, how we go about understanding the life that we live, people that we meet. But I pray that you would give to us a great burden for those who don't know Christ and to realize that we really do have the most important and incredible message inside of us, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you give us wisdom. Help us to recognize opportunities that you give us to be able to share the gospel. And Father, whether it begins by us just being kind to them or being their friend, or whether it's an opportunity to present the entire gospel at that moment, in whatever way it begins, we pray, Lord, that you would help us just to be faithful and to ask that you would bless our feeble efforts. We pray, Lord, that we will be the kind of friend everybody wants to have maybe the kind of friend everybody desperately wants to have, that they'll see us as being faithful and strong because we're people of conviction and that we are that way because of the relationship we have with Christ. And so, Father, we ask now that you would dismiss us with your blessing. Pray, Lord, indeed, that you would use us as you see fit. We ask, Lord, you help us to view our life through the lens of the Word of God and what it says. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.